Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Mark, we've got a stack waddy sent, Excellent. In, sent in by Andrew Slattery. All ah, right. This will be good. Absolutely. and uh, Serial quiz winner, Andrew Slattery. Very good. Absolutely. And he asks you whether you can tell whether the following song titles were previously performed by the toothy um, banjo-strumming comedian of Clitheroe in Lancashire, George Formby, or the mustachioed um, art bandit of California, Frank Zappa, okay? Oh, right. You have to choose between the two. That's is good. It, is it George Formby? Is it Frank Zappa? I'll just give you a few from his um, from his copious Shall list. I decide after each one? We might as yeah, well. Yeah, af- after each one. Okay, here we go. Can't afford no shoes. Is that George Formby or is that Frank Zappa? That's got to be Formby. I'm confident. You're wrong. It's Frank Zappa. <laughs> it's Frank Zappa from One Size Fits All. Okay, right. m- moving on. Daredevil Dick. Is that George Formby or is that Frank Zappa? That sounds like Formby. To- God, that, these, are, these work, don't they? Could be better. George Formby? It is. It's George Formby, yeah, yeah. 1936. What about Friendly Little Finger? Is that George Formby? Is that Frank Zappa? Frank that's Zappa. too rude for George Formby, if such a thing is possible, um, which was always euphemistic, so that's clearly Zappa. It is. It's from Zoot Allures. Yeah. And how about... Um, how about... Let's All Go to Reno. Is that Frank Zappa or is that George Formby? Well, it must be Zappa because Reno would not have been part of the landscape of George Formby at the time, would it? I don't. Shows how wrong you can be. George Formby, 1932. Let's okay. all go to Reno. Okay. Tuna Fish Promenade. Tuna Fish Promenade. Frank Zappa or George Formby? Clearly Zappa. It's, it that's surreal. It's surreal art form stuff. It, isn't it? It's from 200 Motels. Yeah. And, and you can't love two girls at the same time. Is that George Formby? Is it Frank Zappa? It must be Formby. 
It is. It's from 1942. Okay. Uh, so I didn't give you the other ones, uh, such as Kiss Your Mansy Pansy and uh, Ring Your Little Bell and Electric Aunt Jemima. You know, I'll leave people to go and do the, do their own research. Two of those that. have formed me, the last one, Zappa. That's good. That's good work for Andrew Sandy. Thank you very much for that. We like them. Do keep sending them in. Absolutely. Always keen on a stack wadi, and that's a particularly good one. Great, Mark, Mark. I have hot news from uh, from Glastonbury. You know, you know, our youngest daughter went to Glastonbury, and and you you very kindly gave her a kind of tutorial before she went to Glastonbury <laughs> about how difficult Some it was. Advice about where to charge your phone and all the important stuff. And how difficult it was to get um, cell phone reception and so forth. And, you know, she's been there 48 hours. And uh, I thought it was quite interesting because I received this communication via the family WhatsApp group yesterday evening uh, while in Waitrose. And um, I thought it was remarkable that the Glastonbury bill is, is incredibly long and incredibly inclusive in every possible way. You know, everybody you think of is there in some shape or form, in some tiny tent or main stage or whatever. And so my youngest daughter has been there for 48 hours and she was asked by her elder sister, you know, what's happening? Give us a summary. This is a summary. Are you ready? Here we go. Sure. Saw Texas. She was great. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> had some chips, had a sit down, had a ziz, did some sunbathing, went to the Stonehenge, <laughs> saw some weird hippies. It was a great Saw idea. a building made out of fungus. <laughs> I love that. Saw Texas. She, she was, was great. great. <laughs> she was great. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. She's out on a limb there. Uh, well, okay. I watched quite a bit of Glastonbury last night. Actually, this is the we're recording this on the Saturday morning, so I saw the, the Friday night stuff, which is it's really interesting stuff. I mean, Arctic Monkeys, interesting, although a cold experience. The Arctic Monkeys, they really are, and uh, the Foo Fighters, surprise, so sort of. But you know, the, you know what? The, the absolutely when I was at Select Magazine, we always used to have this thing in the, in the Glastonbury coverage about who won Glastonbury, you know, who won, who who produced the moment that was the most immortal the most enduring. And I think it may already have been won by Sparks when they brought on for uh, The Girl Is Crying In Her Latte, they brought on Kate Blanchett as their kind of Bez character who just danced. It's fantastic. She's on stage for five minutes. They're at the park stage. They play this, this really terrific tune. Kate Blanchett, who appeared in their video, so she's done this routine with them already, came on looking absolutely fantastic with a huge pair of kind of pop art specs and red headphones and uh, a bright yellow, slightly baggy suit and very, very expensive trainers. And then rooted to the spot for, for about five minutes does this extraordinary kind of self-impressionistic uh, gymnastic dance display. It was just absolutely rooted. Doesn't speak. She's introduced. They wave her off. She doesn't say a word. And it was absolutely, I think it's the, already become the absolutely uh, the abiding image. It was terrific. It's it's a kind of no-lose situation for an actor, isn't it, really? Because they're not called upon to do any acting. No, they just simply got to stand there and be Kate Blanchett <laughs> and look fabulous, which yes. isn't difficult in her case, and then and then and somehow prove that you can you can dance. <laughs> and actually, anybody who puts their mind uh, mind to it can, can can pull off some kind of routine that works. She looked she looked wonderful. She really did. Right, right, right. So we were talking about live shows last weekend, weren't we? 
I did a kind of. I think you've done a calculation actually, because I was. Oh well, we were talking about just how many how many acts were playing here last weekend. In this London. is we were talking, the whole idea of the the economy and about the this recession. Is London. This is London. This last, is just London. Last weekend. Last weekend. Now it may be slightly unusual weekend because it's the weekend before Glastonbury, and therefore there's probably a lot of people trying to get their gigs in before. But the, but basically, if I, if, I, if I can just go... Also hottest, you know, hottest, longest night of the year, etc. Uh, yeah, et so yeah, yeah OK. Stuff. So anyway, at Wembley Stadium, stadium, mark you, not arena, you had Harry Styles did four shows. Four? Four shows, which I think is something in the region of 350,000 people. That's three hundred fifty thousand. Go and see Harry Styles. And simultaneously, Pet Shop Boys were playing at Wembley, weren't they? So which is like it's just, just peanuts. It's a, an intimate venue. It's effectively like the pub on the corner nowadays. Yeah. Wembley, yeah. Wembley um, Arena, as compared to the stadium. Yeah. Uh, and then you had you had at, uh, at the Arsenal Stadium at the Emirates in 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 London. You had the Arctic Monkeys did three, three nights, three, three nights. lots of sixty thousand, I think, three lots, and, and at the same time you had uh, Depeche Mode did Twickenham. We think only one, a mere one. There may have been more, but yeah, we think there's one. Fifty, I think it's fifty-five thousand. And then the O2 had various people. Hans Zimmer was playing one night. Hand, All packed no, up. No, and Tenacious D. Tenacious D. Who, let's be honest, a comedy act, aren't they? Jack Black and, and Carl Gass. They're, that's, a, that's a kind of it's a comedy act playing twenty thousand seaters. Astonishing. Hans Zimmer. Sorry, I'm going to hold you up here. I think he did two. Uh, probably did two. Hans Zimmer. This is you know a, a film music composer. Did two performances. Yeah. On is it what's the capacity of the O2? Twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. Yeah. And uh, and there's no doubt loads of other shows that we didn't even know about. And I just thought Well, I made it roughly remarkable. I made it roughly seven hundred thousand tickets sold just in that one weekend. So if you assume that the average price of a ticket is hundred pounds, which is probably conservative actually, probably more than that. I, it's about, I don't it's know. About, about, you're in the region of £70 million worth of tickets. It's incredible, isn't it? I'm saying it's rather interesting in the light of a cost of living crisis that somehow people people have found the money to do this this kind of thing. And it just struck me how the whole kind of... Um, the whole business of live performance has just changed in its entire nature and its entire kind of social significance has shifted so much and i went back trying to look at um trying to take the same weekend or as near as i could in um, in 1973 now that's 50 years ago i think i think on the same weekend in 1973 the rolling stones were playing and the rolling stones are you know very um you know high in their particular arc at that point i suppose they were playing Wembley Arena. They did two shows on the Saturday. The Empire were, Pool, wasn't it? Yeah. It was still called the Empire yeah. Pool, which is amazed to note. Um, and they did one show three o'clock on Saturday afternoon and one at eight o'clock on Saturday evening. There was, if you look at 1973, I think David Bowie played Earl's Court in 19, 1973, which was not regarded as a great success. Um, because I don't think they were kitted out to do it. I think Slade... It had terrible it. acoustics, didn't it? 
terribly consistent. And I don't think the staging was up to much at all. And I think Slade may have done one that year as well. And I think possibly Pink Floyd did, did that one, but it was pretty exceptional. Uh, and, and those would have been intended by very dedicated kind of 17-year-old blokes in greatcoats. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who either queued up all night to get tickets or just turned up on the day and paid at the box office and gone in. Whereas, you know, the people paying whatever it is for Harry Styles, 70, 80 quid, are a kind of different breed. For a start, I'm guessing a huge number of them did not pay for the tickets themselves, you know, because they're, they're younger and they don't have access to whatever it costs. Well, that's a whole new part of the economy, isn't it? It's, it's parents being able to afford the tickets, which means that obviously you can rack up the prices because there's, there's more, more, more of a sense of limitless funds there, really. And pressure on parents also to buy those tickets for the kids, you know. Oh, my God, our mates have got their daughter's ticket for... Uh, for Taylor Swift, we've got to do the same. So that's another 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 way of uh, possibility of making even more money, isn't it? You see, is that is that pressure, or is that just a recognition of the fact that the most powerful force in society nowadays is what we you know jokingly refer to as FOMO? You know, it is. People really are worried about missing out. Oh, but any that's, of these that's a social media thing, isn't it? Because if you don't go to, you know, um, whatever it is, Beyonce, then you're being bombarded by other people who did, particularly your mates. And that must be agony. No, but Mark, Wasn't it? if you... <laughs> OK, Taylor Swift has just announced a load of shows, hasn't she, in, in, yeah. in London? Which, for a start, do you know when these shows are, Mark? Do you know when these shows are? They're next year at this time, okay? That's so, right. That's I want you to imagine going back 20 years and saying, you know, Taylor Swift is clearly massively popular, particularly with young women. No doubt about that at all. But the idea that 20 years ago you would have got people to say, okay, in a year's time, I expect to be just as enthusiastic as I am now. And, and therefore... Yeah, I won't have gone, gone off Taylor Swift. Or anything, you know. And um, I would guess that enormous numbers of middle-aged, probably more blokes than women right now, are spending their weekend desperately trying to find out how they can get Taylor Swift tickets for their daughter, you know. In order, how much those costs is not part of the issue. But in order whatever, to... Whatever it costs, the important thing is to get them. In order to please their daughter. Yeah. In order to be... To have their standing in the eyes of their family. Yeah, the daddy did the right take. thing. Unlike other dads. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so their kind of great-grandfathers, whatever, used to go out in the woods to shoot, shoot game or whatever. Yeah. They hunted and gathered... That's right. They these come back people and sling a dead pheasant on the table. <laughs> these these people are now at the family computer, you know, enter again and again and again to try and get on some kind of list to register in order to have the right. Yeah, you've got to register first, which is apparently yeah. incredibly stressful. Absolutely, and um, 
you know, in order to volunteer to be bombarded by junk mail absolutely any time in the future that, you know, future tours want to sell their services to you. It's an absolutely extraordinary state of affairs. And, and you know, I was thinking a really interesting parallel is that, uh, you know, it's very easy to say this is, this is the kind of mad greed of a few individuals in the music business. I, I, I honestly don't think it's as simple as that. Uh, you know, the acts are trying to make money the only way the acts can make money. And, uh, you know, the promoters and the ticket firms and so forth are trying to, trying to get some kind of margin out of a business where the acts take all the money because that that's the way the deal yeah the the way the deal is but um but mo the most important force in this is not the acts it's it's us it's what we think we have to do and how much we think we have to pay for it it's and what it's what we're prepared to pay us because people can accuse the acts of charging too much but 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 they're only charging what people are prepared to pay for so therefore, you can't. I mean, obviously, it's a huge amount, but that's the case. It's like that whole thing about the dynamic pricing. You know that that if you didn't do the dynamic pricing, there would be a load of scalpers buying thousand dollar tickets and selling them for trying to sell them for five thousand. You're effectively doing the same thing yourself because you know there's a market for it. At least some of that money is going to go back to the band. Absolutely. But the great the parallel which struck me yesterday is let's talk about weddings, Mark. Okay, let's move. Yeah. Move this from Taylor Swift and Bruce Springsteen and whoever. Just talk about weddings. I want you to think about the weddings you went to 30 years ago or 40 years ago. When did you get married? You got married 1982. in 1982. Very nice wedding. I, we came ourselves. <laughs> we came well, ourselves. Smash it staff. It was fantastic. Absolutely. Took place in Winchester, didn't it? Winchester. Yeah, it did. You're Winchester. right. Winchester. Yeah. Okay. Church service. And then we went to a nice little hotel, and there was there was a lunch, and there yeah. were a few few speeches. We got you, in a Ford Escort. We drove off on a motoring holiday of northern France. About a four o'clock. Bit of about, shaving foam on the four o'clock uh, in the afternoon. Four o'clock in the afternoon. That was and that, listen, that was a nice middle class wedding, wasn't it? In nineteen eighty three. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in nineteen eighty three. Was that when did you say what's that? Eighty two. Eighty two. And I want you to imagine the same kind of event nowadays. <laughs> that would not be considered adequate, would it? For a start, there would be there would be hen nights. There'd be hen weekends. There'd be there'd stag be, weekends. There'd, there'd be, be in Prague. They'd last a week. There'd be a rehearsal. They'd require five different uh, costume changes. One of which there'd, as a duck or a penguin. Yeah. There would be a rehearsal dinner. Oh you know, yeah, yeah. All that kind of thing. There might even be a meeting of the, uh, you know, the, the the major participants without the happy couple the following day. Yeah. All those things have just grown and grown and grown. There'd be a fireworks show. And the one thing be a mini they, festival. There'd be, be a DJ. The one thing there would certainly be is a do on the Saturday evening, at which the bride and groom would be there. It'd be a massive great party, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and you and Claire would probably be invited to lead the dancing and all that. Yeah, kind of yeah, thing. yeah. All that stuff, that's all come along in the, in the last 30 years. All that stuff. And that's all part of the same forces that drive concert tickets, which is we want everything to be mad special. And we're prepared to pay a fortune for things yeah. to be mad special. We're yeah. prepared to go into debt for things to be mad special. And, uh, you know, people just slap their credit card down you know, yeah. without, without a second thought. 
And so, you know, concert tickets will continue to go up as long as people continue to do that. Because here's the funny thing. If you look at, you know, that, that weekend last weekend, as you say, however many, over a million people or whatever, whatever you said, 700,000 people bought tickets just in London. Though. And if you, you know, if you compare that. And remember, 20... those people are also, bands used to go to you. You know, you used to go to, yeah. you wait till they came to the nearest venue and it was Leicester de Montfort Hall or it was Nostal Coliseum in Cornwall. And you went to see them. It was a little time. Now you've got to go to them. So you've got to travel all the way down through England, probably yeah, find no, a hotel no, to no, stay no, in. Let me, be, let me be clear about this. You don't have to do any of this at all. And I don't one of my one of my uh, children's friends lives in New Yorkshire, and went to see the Arctic Monkeys last week. I think they played in Sheffield. I think it was Sheffield, somewhere in Yorkshire, yeah, football ground in Sheffield. Went to see them, and then came down to see them again at Arsenal a week later. Incredible! That's an expensive hobby. It really is. <laughs> that's that's not need. But could you that's argue wonky. that making tickets more expensive makes them more desirable? It certainly is, appears to be. Is it, that it, is that part of it? It appears to have done exactly that. Um, you know, because I I think those kind of um, seals of quality play a part in this. I can remember meeting for the first time a species of human being who used to go to see whoever was on at Wembley Arena. And you'd say, are you going to say, well, we're going to see Level 42 this week and the Rhythmics next week, whatever, you know. And uh, there's kind of, they weren't, they weren't by any stretch of the imagination obsessive music fans, just people who felt that they should be going to see whatever the big show was. And their reasoning was that if they were playing Wembley Arena, they must be really good. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, there's some element of that, I think, that... That it becomes a kind of status symbol that you've got to go to these, but you've got to go and see Beyonce. It's whether you like that, uh, you know, whether you're a, a particularly keen on that kind of music, or whatever. It's just an event you've got to be at. I mean, um, you know, I went to the uh, you and I went to to, to Wimbledon uh, last year, didn't we? And yeah. there were some people sitting in front of us who clearly had no interest in Wimbledon at all. No. Had obviously bought tickets themselves. They were on some kind of corporate jolly or anything. I'm going to I'm going to interrupt you here because I think. I think you you you've slid over what is the key point here. They had no interest in tennis. No, but they had huge interest in being at Wimbledon. Being with, and what they did most of the time was, apart from ordering flagons of rose, it was to send in, send Instagrams of themselves with whoever was in the background playing, just basically saying we're at Wimbledon. That's one thing we've ticked off that we've done that we feel that we ought to do because everyone else to do. It's a sort of status thing, don't you think? Yeah, and I, I don't want to say it sounds not sneering at people or whatever. No, not remotely. But but kind of the exhibition side of it has become so much a part of the experience. You know, if you if you tell people if you, if you, all those people go to Glastonbury this weekend, you know, how how many are there? Three hundred thousand people? About, about two hundred fifty thousand, yeah, paying okay. customers. And if you were to say to them, um slightly cheaper. Um, you know, 50 quid cheaper. But you can't take your mobile with you. They wouldn't go. They would not No, that's go. the whole point. Well, actually, you wouldn't be able no. to negotiate your way around it or find anybody. But the point is to send send pictures. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> or, or whether you send them or not, just you've got a picture yourself, you know, and um, that you can I was look looking at it. 
talking about the money in Glasgow, I was looking at a tweet that Kat, Catelyn Moran has sent, uh, the Times writer who's out there at the moment, you know, and uh, she was making the point that one of the reasons that, 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 that people go, because it's just pure and simply joy, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that, you could apply that to all these concerts we've been talking about, but, you know, they're quite grim times, there's a lot going on, people are quite preoccupied, but to go to one of these things and just have absolute happiness for five days, it's brilliant. And I looked at all the responses, a lot of people were going, yeah, Rich people's party, um, <laughs> conservative party ball. I was thinking, what? This is because actually Glastonbury is three hundred and thirty-five pounds for a five-day ticket. Actually, that's pretty reasonable. You know, assuming it doesn't rain and nobody nicks anything from your tent, you know, you're going to get your money's worth. No, Obviously, it it's going to cost God knows what a day to feed yourself on your eight-pound portions of chips and things. But by the same token, that what people are saying is, this is my annual holiday. If you said, would you spend £700 an annual holiday? Yes, you would. So why not you just go to Glastonbury and that's it? You camp at Glastonbury. Brilliant idea. So, no, it's comparatively reasonable. Well, it's like price. football. Whenever I go to football, if you go to Premier League football, you know, and I, I, I only go occasionally when I, somebody asks me or something, you know, somebody's got a spare ticket. And I sit there and I, I love it. I love it. It's brilliant spectacle. It's, it's great drama, all that. But I look around me and I think, these people are doing this every single week. Yeah. They're paying for annual season tickets. They're buying replica shirts. All that kind of stuff. There is nothing. I don't divert that much money to anything. But although I suppose it's fair to say we all we all choose what are the things we kind of... Do you know, you know that series, Parks and Recreation? Yeah, yeah. There's a very good... Uh, there's a very good kind of thread in there. I suppose we call it trope. Was it Don Meagle and uh, God, what's his name? I can't remember the name of the other actor. They talk about treat yourself. It's all about treat yourself. Go out yeah, and buy yeah. ridiculous things. Treat yourself. And people do treat themselves, you know. And I don't treat myself to kind of expensive clothes or cars. or you know, I'm really not bothered about that kind of thing. I do treat myself to kind of items of computer hardware, yeah, and and and, and you know speakers and you know, and the latest iPad or whatever. I do that, no doubt about it. I'm a complete pushover for that kind of thing. That's the stuff I spend my money on, and you know, people just choose what it is that they spend their money on. I suppose, and and there's kind of. There's no point complaining about it. You know, if you do that, there's no point me turning around and going, well, Apple are making these computers a bit expensive. Well, fine. Don't buy them. Well, don't yeah. buy them. Is that the same with the concerts? Okay, there are the Springsteen tickets seem pricey, but if that's the case, it's like, like we were talking about this yesterday, weren't we? All these people say, I've seen Springsteen 140 times, and I'm not going anymore because it's too small. Well, then don't go. Move over and give your seat to someone who's never seen Bruce Springsteen and would love to. We really appreciate it's not going to sit there with their arms crossed, grumbling. And actually, there are you know, if you want to go and say music, there's loads of music. You know, there's loads of cheap, reasonably priced music that isn't made by incredibly famous people. Because what you're paying for is fame, isn't it? You're paying yeah. for the fact that these people are monopolies. They, you know, they're, they're monopolies. If you want to go and see Bruce Springsteen, there's nobody like Bruce Springsteen, really. You would, you know, if it's two hundred pounds for Bruce Springsteen, you wouldn't go. I'll tell you what, John Cougar Mellencamp's down the road at fifty quid. Do you yeah. see that? No, no, I don't. No, no, you want, you know, 
it's, it's like Beyonce, like any of these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. They're complete monopolies. That's you know, that's why they are who they are. Yeah. Um, but um, the other statistic about Beyonce was the number of people coming over from America to see her in Europe. Did you see that? Yeah. Because it was so expensive to oh, see her. I mean, oh, I'm God. sure it's more expensive to fly to Sweden or <laughs> stay in a hotel. And that's the other, the, the economy, generated, oh, yeah. the business generated by those things. There was a statistic about Taylor Swift's tour, which I said, I think it was that the, the total economic impact of the tour was going to reach $4.6 billion. So that's everywhere she goes. You know, when she played in uh, Chicago re recently, the occupancy was 98%. So 98% of every available place you could rent to stay was sold out. So if you imagine that, the, the, the booze, the food, the taxis, the hotels, it's phenomenal, isn't it? I've just been, I've just been working on something, uh, writing about this, because you, you know what was the, the tour that changed all this was uh, the Stone Steel Wheels tour? You know, because they, they they got Canadian promoter Michael yeah. Cole came in there, and he was he said I I want to promote this tour, and uh, you know the normal um, promoter had been Bill Graham or whatever. Yeah, and he basically came in there and bid twice of what everybody else bid, because he had the vision to say no, this is way bigger than just yeah a band on stage. This is about yeah, and it also factored in the fact you could adjust the cost of the Stones tickets, and people would still buy them. Yeah, yeah, because there's only one Rolling Stone. Yeah, although even he wouldn't have realised back in those days just how far you could push them. You know? Yeah, but I suppose that's the other thing. That's the other thing I was talking to you about this yesterday. I wrote, wrote I went to see Bruce Springsteen first time ever at Madison Square Garden on Thanksgiving 1980, just before John Lennon was killed. So it gives you an idea of how long ago that was. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he would have been, he would have been 31, Bruce Springsteen. So this must have been, it must have been the river. Yeah, it was. The, and um, so he would have been 31. And so I'm in Madison Square Garden, and what's the capacity of that? 20,000, I think it is, something like that. And you can look around that place. Now, it's a long time ago, so I'm not pretending it. I accurately remember. If you think about it, there wouldn't have been anybody in that building over the age of 40. They just wouldn't have been. Not possibly, because he just hadn't entered the world of people. Nobody age. had at that point. But if you looked around to say a Beyonce crowd, Beyonce crowd would be... Late sixties down to kind of ten, wouldn't they? Absolutely, it's the whole population. Whole you know, it used to be a subculture. It's not. Yeah, <laughs> not anymore. It's the dominant culture, um, and you know, it's kind of it's priced accordingly. Really, you know, it's um, it, it might not be easy to come to terms with, but. Um, but that's the way it is, really. And, uh, you know, if you want to go and see people who don't charge as much, there are people who don't charge as much. And the loads of musicians really happy to have you. Because that's the other thing, is that I've got this stat in front of me. In 1981, so roughly when I saw Springsteen then, the top 1% of artists took 26% of all the concert revenue, okay? Right across the market. The top 1% took 26%. 
By 2003, and that's 20 years ago, the top 1% were taking 56%. So if what you want to be now, I can't imagine. But you know, well, let's say it's 70. Yeah. So it's leaving everybody else less to go at. It <laughs> is. You know, because if you've if you've spent that much on Beyonce tickets for you and your family and and so forth, you haven't got an awful lot left to you know pay for going to, to see buy food are. for the next ten years. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone you make valiant efforts. Tell you, Robert Smith, with that Cure tour, made valiant efforts to keep the the ticket prices down. Was trying to offer tickets for twenty dollars, but I mean the the two ticket sales operatives then added all sorts of costs, didn't they? So it became impossible. So a twenty dollar ticket was kind of seventy dollars or whatever. Well, you've but still it's very got, hard to control. You've still got this, this this basic problem that the artists do not want to be seen to charge the prices that they know people will pay. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. And so they're happy for somebody else to charge it. They don't want to be seen charging it themselves. And uh, there's, there's your core problem. Um, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to go away. The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Well, great. We've just been joined by Giles Smith, the author of a fantastically funny and wonderful book um, called Lost in Music, which came out in, um, it's my proof copy, I've still got it, came out in 1995. And Giles, I have a theory about this book, is that before this book, which came out a week before Nick Hornby's uh, High Fidelity, oh, and just really? a week before, incredible, there's lots of similarities. <laughs> uh, but you were there first. My theory is that before this, there were kind of broadly two types of books, that were kind of rock critics writing about the kind of uh, memoirs about rock stars. And then there were uh, analytical books about music, like What Bop a Loo Bop by Nick Cohn. But this is the first book that I remember reading is about the real relationship that people had with music. You know, you write about being obsessed with David Boland, seen through, uh, with uh, Mark Boland, seen through the eyes of yourself uh, when you were 10 at the time. You write about the fact that your, your first 
record was not let it be as you told people but it was actually a windmill in old amsterdam and you write about the reasons that people really genuinely want to be in rock bands. And I thought that was really, really original. I think you started a whole vogue there. If you read things like Pete Perfini's Broken Greek, which came out recently, that that book, you know, the use, I want you to take some credit for starting this whole literary Yeah, book. we're, we're, we're going to give you all the credit. Go on. Okay. Me, will I'm you do very, that? I'm very happy to take all that credit, uh, uh, even though I'm not sure about the history backing me up on that. I do think, I mean, the book did want to be quite proudly wrong about things. And yeah, I suppose that's not really a strength of rock writing. Often, <laughs> I mean, other people like to feel they're championing the right causes and getting behind the stuff that matters. By and being wrong, you mean just liking loads of things that are incredibly unfashionable. Liking unfashionable things and liking them for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and yeah. Wanting, wanting to be a rock star for a whole bunch of the wrong reasons. Really, I think that's kind of what, in as much as the book has a kind of character arc or you know a journey for the main character it's it's discovering that um you know that you 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 really feel you want to be a, a musician very badly you want to be a rock star and then but you discover in the end that what you are is actually a fan and that's a completely different thing from being a musician and your main motive for being a rock star is just showing off isn't it it's the whole idea that school bands the most fun about school bands were the people on the inside of the bands, not the people watching. Yeah, absolutely. And you were having all the fun. You didn't really realise at the time you were having a lot more fun than anybody on the outside. Yeah. So this book first published in 1995, but here it is being republished all these years later. Tell us about the story of how it got from one to the other. Well, it's it's been funny because kind of it's almost as if every 10 years in its life, there seems to be something new that comes along. So... About 10 years after it was published, someone in Germany suddenly decided they wanted to do a, a version of it in German, um, which I was very pleased about because a, a lot of the story of my band that I tell in the book, which is The Cleaners from Venus, uh, happened in Germany. We, we, we could only get a record deal in Germany, uh, the only country that was interested in putting our music out uh, for various reasons. Um, some of them pertaining to the fact that we were trying to sound a bit like the Beatles, which was very fashionable. It would never stopped being fashionable in Germany, had definitely stopped being fashionable here at that time. This was just before Britpop. Um, so that happened after about 10 then, And then after another 10 years, someone in Spain wanted to do an edition of it. So suddenly there was a Spanish version. So I, I found myself being dragged back to it sort of every decade or so. Right. Um, and then suddenly someone at Penguin decided that they'd quite like to put it out again. So Why now you, you've, you've, written a, you've written a fabulous introduction to the, the new uh, the new edition, which, uh, you know, updates all the things that have changed in popular music in the time since you, since, since it came out. And, you know, suddenly you make the point that nowadays all pop music is there forever, isn't it? Thanks to the internet. It's, it's all there. And, and it's kind of, um, a golden age in some ways, I think, or certainly a golden age in which, in which to be a fan and a listener. Um, you know, I, when the book came out, it was possible to get very excited about the fact that you could listen to music on a Walkman, you know, yes. carry music around with you, which just seemed like the best breakthrough ever. And then, you know, really not many years after the book came out, suddenly you had an the iPod with 40,000 songs on it. Um, uh, and then the idea that that itself wouldn't last very long and suddenly you'd have streaming, which just brings you everything all the time uh, from, a, from 
you know, the point of view of the, the hardware that we, that we use to consume music, everything has changed. But of course, we haven't changed very much. So much of it's about the fact that it's, it's, it's the analog era, isn't it? You know, the, 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 the precious physical commodity going to record shops and buying things and seeing gigs. I mean, it, it would be quite hard to write a book like that now with the same kind of piercing enthusiasm. I think it would. I mean, we haven't lost it, obviously. And in fact, you know, people of our generation um, still clinging to the physical object very much. But, I, I, you know, I look at my kids who who own nothing. Yeah. Uh, music all the time. Own no music. I mean, it's all just on their phones. Uh, that's very different. And that, that sort of fetishism of the, of, the, of the object is no longer there for them. But, you know, at the same time, they travel light. I mean, I kind of envy them that. Uh, they're not encumbered by these things. They have yes. tons and tons of crap yeah. uh, accumulating behind them. Do you feel that you've changed your mind about any of the music you wrote about? There's a lovely bit in the book where you go to college and have a purging of your record collection, you because you're embarrassed by your ELO albums and your Genesis albums, all that. Is there anything that you enthused about in the book at the time that you now feel differently about, or, or you know, your view changed? I know that um, the ELO, Jeff Lynne's A New World Record, the ELO album, was a victim of that purge. That was one of the ones I decided to to bin, and on the grounds that I, I felt it would embarrass me in some way to be seen to own it, um, and that was clearly. I mean, with time, that's come to look like a very shoddy decision. It's Stalin is just... It is. It is. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty strong record, and, and no one's really embarrassed anymore about liking it. And that's great. I'm glad that you don't... Absolutely. I like you bit in your new introduction about, is it down in the tube station at midnight? You, you, you recognise the fact that you've gone off that. Yes. Because you talk about... He, it seemed like a piece of gritty social realism at the time, but now I realise it was somebody making up a situation that would literally never happen in life. That's right. This occurred to me only really much later. It did. I thought Paul Weller was this great. He's writing about these things that we all, you know, know and understand and have never been written about in song before. But then you look at the lyrics of that song, and there's this person taking a curry home on the tube at midnight. I mean, it doesn't seem to be actually anything anyone has ever done. I mean, you kind of, would you ever use the tube to transport a curry home? To <laughs> I don't think you would. And then the wife is apparently at home polishing wine glasses. Yeah. At midnight. I mean, is she really, she's waited up that long. Is she, why is she polishing wine glasses to- For, for a takeaway curry. curry. And it, the whole thing does actually collapse. Yeah, when yeah. You, when you slightly poke it. Um, and I suppose, yeah, that's, yeah, I've gone off that a little. You know, the reason people write books and the reason people publish books is, is fuss. We all love the fuss, don't you? You, know, you write over here about having done sparsely attended book events in, in, yeah. in bookshops. Have you got any of those planned for the reissue of it? Well, I'm very nervous about that. There's been talk of all sorts of things, including possibly, play, you know, the idea seems to be that I could go to a, a, a bookshop and maybe play some old cleaners from Venus scenes. And I, I so. What, reform the band? Reform. You and Martin Newell. He'd yeah, be thrilled. That's not going to happen. He would exactly be very. Yeah. He would be less than thrilled. And I would be less than thrilled. Yeah. Uh, so I really hope it's not going to happen. But I am anticipating that whole being wheeled out into a bookshop in front of two people and 
deciding to go to Pizza Express instead. Because <laughs> that's very much the world of promotion. We've all done that, Giles. Yeah. We've all done that. <laughs> There's no disgrace in that whatsoever. It's just fantastic to see the book out, out once again. And oh, uh, people who enjoyed it, it really before will enjoy it uh, even more. And anyone who... listening who hasn't read it, it, it is simply, I, I reread it every few years and still get the same amount of pleasure from it. It's just wonderful. So, Lost in Music, Lost in Music, Giles Smith. <laughs> Thanks very much, Giles. The Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since 2007. Yeah, yeah. And we have been in, uh, joined by birthday guest Blaine Allen, all the way from uh, sunny Canada. Blaine, lo- lovely to see you. Is it, it's not the birthday Did today, you? is it? Sorry? Is it the birthday today? No, no, it was uh, last week. Was it celebrated in some particular way? Oh, we had pizza. Oh, my God, (laughs) you you devils. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. The slippery slope from pizza. My (laughs) goodness. God, it'll be fish and chips next. It's a gateway drug. It's a gateway drug pizza. (laughs) Brilliant. So, look, you've got a question you want to toss on the conversational fire. Well, which one would you like? Well, the one you we like the one about uh, record collection. Your record collection. What's your question? Give us the question. Well, we are all uh, we are all of a certain age, and uh, and of course, David is sitting in front of a massive collection. I remember we spoke about this uh, last year that uh, that I had a reasonable collection. And, uh, you know, I've wondered, you've raised this, but never really dealt with it. What are your estate plans for, uh, for your vinyl? Estate plans. I like that, estate plans. That's Shall good. I tell you? I, on, was only, you first. I was only thinking about this th- this morning before your question came in, actually. And I was, I was remembering that uh, my wife and I first made wills when we first had children, which is like 40 years ago or whatever. And uh, it's all very straightforward, you know. Mine goes to hers, goes to me, you know, all that, all that standard stuff. There's nothing specified, but we we put on the the will. One of the executors was to be a very old friend of mine, very old work colleague of mine. Um, and why was he there? Just purely because he would know what to do with the records. Yeah, now, bear in mind, yeah. this is quite a long time ago, and there were be fewer records. But anyway. The idea was Steve was going to be on there as an executor, so he knew know what to do with the records. And I, I have to tell you the sad news that he died 23 years yeah. ago, 22 years ago. So, you know what I mean? You never know what's going to happen no. with exactly. anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, with all, all wills, we will all have had experience of being beneficiaries of wills or being involved with wills in one, one way or another. And what we do know is it never turns out the no, way, no. way we, anybody expects. We made a will about, uh, the first will about 30 years ago. And in that, the way we, we gave an itemised album to various of our best pals. You were on it, Dave, actually. Uh, right. and, uh, <laughs> what did and, I get? Uh, and uh, I can't tell you. <laughs> and then we've changed that now 30 years later because, I mean, some of them aren't with us anymore and some of them we, I've just lost touch with, actually. But also the joke itself at the time just doesn't seem funny anymore. <laughs> so, so somebody, instead of discovering through the grapevine that we've died, you suddenly get someone turning up at their door with a copy of Camembert Electrique by Gong, which they absolutely detest. And thinking, why? what's this? It's, it's from Mark Ellen, the late Mark Ellen. <laughs> but anyway, I know, I know. It's just... <laughs> So what no, have you? Stop d- that. 
What have you done, Blaine? Have you made any plans? Well, uh, like you, I thought about someone uh, some years ago who would who might want the collection. But in in the meantime, of course, I think that would have been probably 15, 20 years ago, 15 years ago or so. And uh, I, I realized no one really wants to be lumbered with all of this stuff. Uh, even if they might really, you know, they might like yeah. music, they might like the contents. And of course, you know, now people of this person has migrated over to streaming or to Apple yeah. Music and, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and doesn't want the bulk. So, I mean, I feel like, I feel like I, 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 I it came, I feel like I'm doing something honorable. Um, the local symphony orchestra has an annual record sale. And uh, I just thought the thing to do uh, would be to donate the collection to this sale at some point, maybe even while I'm still alive and doddering around. Um, um, so that uh, oh, that's the lovely idea. Up and used. So your original pressing of uh, of uh, a Martha and the Muffins single might buy them a new, uh, you know, piccolo trumpet or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. That's great. <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> that's very good. So they'd sell it for, for for proceeds to charity, and the charity being the the orchestra, the, the orchestra itself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's an excellent. It's idea. a really good idea. That's a, we shall add that to the to the list of ideas. Um, and the orchestra could probably all go through and choose one choose one record that they particularly liked as well. Is that well, possible? Yeah. 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 I don't know. I I don't know how, exactly how they they've done this. I don't know. I haven't really inquired. I've heard of people yeah, yeah. their collections and uh, and and actually the symphony you know makes a, a public point of saying that so and so has donated this massive collection of CDs or. Uh, LPs and uh, and it makes me think that they're interested in acquiring them. So um, let's hope I'm not burdening them with uh, you know. <laughs> no, that's that they, lovely. It's a really want. nice solution. Yes, good work. Yeah, you should do that, but it's far off in the future. So don't we worry about so. that. Many more birthday slots. Many, to come. many more birthday <laughs> slots. <to come. laughs> Beethoven, Beethoven and Brahms will still be around. So yeah, they will. They'll yes, still they will. be looking for money. Brahms can, and List, indeed. Yeah. You can come back next year and ask us the same question, and we'll pretend we've never heard it. <laughs> never heard it. <laughs> because we'll all be so doddery by so then. Serious. We'll have totally Good. forgotten about it. So, well, very thanks, very, thanks very much for your question. And uh, happy birthday, thank albeit you so belatedly. And thank you for your support, which we very much value. Much appreciated. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. We're joined by uh, Patreon birthday boy, Richard Lewis. Hello, Richard. It's not today, is it? It's not. It was uh, a few days ago on Midsummer's Day. Right. Oh, what a lovely day to have it. Fantastic. It's great. Longest, you know, day, of, longest day of the year, so it's a good birthday to have. Absolutely. Now, we traditionally ask our, our birthday guests if they've got a conversational log they care to throw on the fire or a question posed to the jury. What have you got, Richard? Uh, this is about record sleeves. Oh, I love that record sleeve. Go on. I, I would like to know if you were thinking of buying a record at one point because you'd heard it on the radio or something, but you repaired to your local record shop you saw the cover and you thought, no, I'm not, I'm not having this. 
<laughs> That's a really good question. It's a very, very, very good, good question. question. Have you got one, Mark? Well, I can remember age, well, whatever I would have been, about 13, I think, going to try and buy a copy of 40 Blue Fingers Freshly Packed and Ready to Serve by Chicken Shack and having to pause for quite a long time when you see the tin with the blue fingers in it yeah. uh, on a supermarket shelf. And uh, it took a bit of courage to buy that. The one I remember, although I don't think I was going to buy it, but the most horrific sleeve I remember uh, was, was one by Tofat. Do you remember that, Dave? Oh, I do. <laughs> Tofat I had do. an album in 1970. What a terrible name for a band. And it was a load of people kind of naked with their naked torsos and their heads had been removed and replaced by a toe. Uh, yes. And if anybody listening has never seen that sleeve, Google it and it it's will a, actually don't because you'll never get it out of your head. It'll disturb you for weeks. It's a hip, awful. It, it's a hypnosis cover, that is. That was That's one of the ideas that they had, they had kicking around. Hit, uh, and, the, and the Debbie Harry cuckoo sleeve. Yes, which you, I happen to have in this room. Actually. You've got that. that. Yeah, yeah. You see, that's an interesting case. That's a woman whose solo career was completely destroyed by the cover by of that, that album. Cover of which her was, face with wow. skewers going yeah. through it. Oh, my so, God. And coming out the so, other side, it was absolutely repulsed. And a deliberate thing on her part, because it was kind of like, it's not all about the way I look, it's about my art. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> people thought, I don't know about this at all. <laughs> Are you sure? Oh. No, I don't mean that kind of, but I mean, there, there was an element of, uh, of her being self-mutilated that did not help anyway. Have you got an example, Richard? You, you must have yeah. a nice experience yourself. Go on. Absolutely. When I was having my my brief teenage heavy metal phase, um, I used to listen religiously to the Friday Rock Show with Tommy Vance. TV on radio. The larynx on legs. <laughs> Thomas the Vance. Thomas the Vance. And um, he played the title track by 2112 by Rush. All right. And I, I loved it. I thought it's a 20-minute long track, but it, yeah. it was kind of science fiction and sound effects about this dystopian future where music's banned. Great stuff. And and I thought it was brilliant, so I went along to my HMV. And the cover itself wasn't so bad, but if you flip the sleeve over, there was a shot of the band, and they looked so appalling. <laughs> they, they they were in their kind of 70s pomp, right. and they're, they're all dressed in white silk. They got tight white silk flares on, but they're wearing what looked like a series of kimonos, Oh, sort of yes. up into the chest. And the, the drummer Neil Pert has got this horrible Dick Dastardly moustache. Yes. And, and I just thought, I can't take this home. I can't put this next to my Madness albums oh, <laughs> and so all my punk stuff. So you never bought it? It's interesting I, because the other thing is that business of taking things home. I was, I was thinking about this a lot. You know, recently, I don't think I, but I never bought Jimi Hendrix's Electric Layla Land because it was it was uh, entirely just too embarrassing. Naked women, and my mother would not no. in the house. I don't <laughs> think, you know. Whereas when I'd left home, I remember I bought the first blind the, the Blind Faith album without a hint of embarrassment or anything like that. You know. And, okay. and uh, you crikey, no. I know, no, at but actually, time, no. at the time, it didn't seem that, that frightful for some reason. <laughs> now, it seems absolutely you can have a better look at it, absolutely. And uh, I tell you, the other thing I was struck me in terms of it working the other way because it's an interesting question, this because it's it's not just taste, it's also I tended to like album covers that looked had a certain amount of finesse about them. 
that made the record look kind of worth it, look expensive. I didn't like things that looked cheap. I realised that. That's why. Because like pet sounds then. Well, well, yeah, pet sounds, yeah. <laughs> Worst pretty, example. Pretty poor one. But um, the first Frank Zappa record I ever bought was Hot Rats. And I make no bones about it. It's because the sleeve was fantastic. Yeah, it was fantastic. Wow. And, and it just looked crisp and confident and, you know, it didn't look overly zany or anything like that. And I realised also in thinking about your question this morning, I used to want to buy a Funkadelic record. This is in the 70s. And think I used to get near the covers and think, no, I'm not <laughs> buying a Funkadelic. Because they just look cheap. Yeah, they, they, they look like a student's joke, you know, and I couldn't. They imagine. look like one of those top of the pops covers albums, you know. Oh God, absolutely awful. Um, I think it's interesting because you can have um, great album crap cover like Pet Sounds, but it's never the other way around. You never get a stinker of an album, but really great cover. No, it's, it's true. That's if true. The, if it's the music, if the music's rotten, it kind of kills any any hope of the sleeve being yes. any good. Yeah. But it, it 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 doesn't happen with um with movies or books. No. You can have a I I, I love collecting trashy old pulp novels of the 50s and 60s. So I've got these books like uh, Beatnik Orgy. Oh great. <laughs> or, or I, I I was a communist junkie rent boy and oh, things lovely. like that. Yeah, and they that's have fantastic. The, they have these wonderfully lurid covers, but the, the contents of the book are never going to match up to the, the title or the cover. And it's it sounds like with... a Morrissey song, isn't it? Once you've got the title, you've got 95% <laughs> of the entertainment is already there. Don't but really it, need to hear it, actually. But it is a, a key difference between the packaging of books and the packaging of, of records, as, certainly as was, that, you know, as I've, as I always think, you know, that they republished George, George Orwell's 1984 every 20 years with a totally different cover. Mm. They, they try and make it up to date, you know, so it'll be done with a kind of Me Too cover or a whatever, whatever yeah. the, TikTok. Is a social, a social <laughs> trend or whatever. Nobody is going to do that with Sergeant Pepper. Nobody's no. going to take, you know, an old Jimi Hendrix record and give it a, give it a cover for the modern era because somehow... Old, classic old rock and roll records. doesn't matter when they were made. They never looked dated at all. Mm. If, they, if they're regarded as enough of a classic, mm. you know, if, if we feel strongly enough about the music, the graphics never look dated, ever, you know. Mm -hmm. they, they just exist in a, in a dimension all on their own. It, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting topic, Richard. I'm glad you've raised it. I, I feel we've done we've done an important social service in airing <laughs> airing these issues in case anybody gets worried about them. And uh, very nice to talk to you, and thank you for your for your continued support. And we look forward to talking to you next year. Talk to you next year. Happy birthday! Again. Can I can I recommend a quick book? Go, Go on. on, if I may. Uh, talking of of books, uh, this is the collected George Melly. Oh, right. Right, right, right. Absolutely fantastic. Because if you think debauched behavior by bands started with the Rolling Stones, no, 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 no. The stuff he gets up to oh, here with kind God. of. Also, the, the bisexual marriage, wasn't there? You know. Yeah, yeah. But it's all something like... one of my favorite Time Out headlines Eat, drink, and be melly. This picture <laughs> of him at a restaurant tucking away the, uh, it, the, it's the, the strong he, booze. 
he talks about having all these knee tremblers in alleyways with, yeah, with yeah. the oh, yeah. jazz groupies. And and the best one, what are the, the groupies is called Mucky Alice. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's superb. <laughs> it's very old school. Was it I think it's probably in that book that he, he famously said when when his sexual desire began to wane in 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 later years, he said. Thank goodness. I felt as if I'd gone round for the last 40 years strapped to a lunatic. That's right. <laughs> and wasn't he also the author of the great line about Mick Jagger? He said, uh, yeah, laughter lines? There's nothing is that fun. That fun. Talking about uh, Mick Jagger's uh, face. I know. Uh, go on. I, I, one, I, one further thing on George Melly. I interviewed George Melly, um, you know, in later years. It is. It is. He lives in Shepherd's Bush. And uh, he didn't stir much from his chair. I don't think his health was great, you know, but he liked regaling journalists. And I turned up to interview in the morning about 10 o'clock at a point in time. And he was sitting in, the, in his front room wearing a kind of caftan, effectively. <laughs> I can't imagine. So he didn't have to wear anything underneath it, I would imagine. And, uh, and after about an hour, you know, getting towards 11 o'clock, he says, do you fancy a sherry? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, why not? Nobody had offered me a sherry in years. And of course, a sherry around Shea Melly, let me tell you, was a Generous pretty, ma pretty major <laughs> schooner. Oh, you know, it was enough to have you half cut, you know. And he used to finish his interview in New Duties about half past 11 and then get dressed and go for lunch somewhere. And there would be drink at the lunch, you know. And then he'd probably come home and there might be there might be a, a snort over the race. There'd be whiskey and water all. It's like Winston Churchill, isn't it? Absolutely. Champagne in the afternoon and then hit the hit the fire water at six o'clock. Absolutely. Incredible. Great I, man. I, re I recently painted him for my, my book on swearing, I think I mentioned last time. All right. On, yeah. because uh, he was one of the defendant uh, defendants uh in the Oz trial. Yes, he was. He was. And he had to um to find to the judge what cunnilinctus was. Cunnilinctus. Yeah, like it's a cough medicine. Yes. And he was, <laughs> he's brilliant. He's like, oh, um, gobbling, my lord, uh, going down. And then he said, or oh, as we used to say in my naval days, yodeling in the canyon. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. Yodeling in the canyon. He should have oh, called that his autobiography. He should. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Well, thanks very on much. That for tremendous that, note <laughs> on that bombshell. <laughs> thanks so much. Cheers, thanks, guys. Brilliant, uh, Richard. The Word Podcast: One of the few things you really need in life. Well, that's been another packed podcast, hasn't it, Mark? I can barely remember the beginning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. And lots for, of very interesting uh, contributions from various people. Very, very good. Yeah, we thanks for Blaine Allen doing it. It was great, and Richard Lewis. Uh, yes, just uh, that Giles Smith. Uh, and I have to reiterate Giles's book. Is magnificent. Yep. It yep. really is. And a real game changer. As I say, it came out a week before Nick Hornby's uh, um, High Fidelity. But he's and not bitter. He's not, no, no, it's perfect. <laughs> he got there first. And they're very similar. There's a scene in both books in a record store, which is extraordinarily similar, talking about the arrogant staff being rude to people who come in and buy George Benson records. Or That's me. That's Absolutely me. true. Yeah, I'm sure those, that's you, Those are my people. Uh, yeah. So that's Giles Smith's book, Lost in Music, which is uh, reissued. Uh, it's available right now. If you'd like to be featured as one of our birthday um, uh, guests, 
you have to be a Patreon supporter. And if you want to know about how to be a Patreon supporter, if you go to www.patreon.com slash word in your ear, you can find out how you can be involved and also spread the sum of human happiness far and wide. So make sure you do that. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.